Good evening. If you have your Bibles, open it to Matthew chapter 21. When we started the Gospel of Matthew, at the very beginning, even through the genealogy, we spoke about how Matthew was talking to the Jewish people, to those who were Israelites. And what he was doing was pointing them in the direction that God was at work. Even through the genealogy of Christ, we saw that there was these people who, who didn't belong in the genealogy, specifically some of the women who weren't of Jewish lineage, Rahab and such, that were outside of the norm, and yet these were those who were part of the Messiah's lineage. And what Matthew was doing is saying, I want you guys to see that God is doing a bigger work than just what he has done in the past with the nation of Israel. And throughout this book, Matthew has been pointing us to this new work that God is going to be doing, reaching out to the rest of the world, the Gentile world, and not just exclusively to the nation of Israel. And it's important to keep this in mind because as we are moving forward, Matthew continues to hammer home these things. It's interesting. I mean, when Jesus was born, who were the ones who came and gave him gifts? Foreigners, right? The Magi, the wise kings, whatever we've known them as. They were basically astrologers. They weren't people who you would expect to be the ones to herald that the Messiah, the king, is born. And yet, that's exactly who it was. And we've been looking, even on Sundays, about the kingdom of heaven, and with the king, Jesus, comes the kingdom. And so, we are seeing how the kingdom of God looks through the person of Jesus, and... It is pushing forward the understanding of who God is and his work among us. And now we come to chapter 21, and this begins the Passion Week, as it's known. This is the, the final week of Jesus' life. So we're, we're kind of taking place Sunday. And what's interesting is Matthew throughout his gospel has been kind of telescoping things. He has a way of just putting all these things together. He, he's not so much in a chronological order as we find in Mark's gospel, for example. Matthew kind of puts them in focus so that we can see intention with the things that Jesus did and what he said and his point, what that point was. Because they're... Together, there's a correlation that's taking place with these thoughts. And so, think about it. The first 20 chapters were three and a half years almost, or three years of Jesus' ministry, and the last seven chapters are one week. Because now we're getting to an important part. Now we're, we're taking a turn, and we're starting to come into focus 
of the intent and the purpose. Let's read verses 1 through 11 in chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their clothes on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these passages here tonight, Lord, even as they had purpose when Matthew penned them, they have purpose today. May we be open to your purposes in our own hearts and our own understanding. May you speak to us through these verses. And Lord, may our time here be enriched with your presence and awareness of what you are saying to us. We thank you again for this time, and we do ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Now, he's been to Jerusalem before, but this is the final time, the final week that he's actually coming to Jerusalem, and he sends two disciples ahead. Most likely, they are Peter and John we get that from Luke's gospel where Jesus sent them ahead to prepare for the Passover. And so we think that not only did they have to prepare for the Passover, they were also getting this donkey and the colt of the donkey as well. Um, as he is sending them out, it's interesting that one of the things I was wondering is why did Jesus need both the donkey and the colt? He only rode on one. I just thought that was interesting. Because one of the Gospels just points out the one, but here we're hearing that there was two there. Any thoughts on why he would bring two? This is all speculation. I don't know. I don't have no epiphany. So if you're thinking, oh, he's going to say something profound, just want to let you down right away. I had read one person had said that, you know, having... He was going to ride on this animal that had never been ridden. And having the donkey's colt, taking it away from its mom would actually be kind of cruel. And so they actually brought them together, the donkey and the colt, so that they could be together. I don't know. I just think it's interesting that he, he asked for them both. What is also interesting is this is the first time 
in both Matthew and Mark's gospel that Jesus is actually called Lord. If anyone, verse 3, says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. And so here is where Jesus is actually called Lord. Um, I had always thought that this was some, it was like the fish when Jesus sent Peter to, to go get the taxes out of the fish's mouth. You know, he got the fish and pulled, sure enough, there was the coins for the taxes. Um, I always thought this was kind of the same thing that he just wandered into town and said, hey, there's a donkey and a colt. Hey, the Lord needs them. The guy goes, okay, I guess if the Lord needs them, I guess go ahead and take them. But what I think's happening here and what I've kind of read is that these people were actually people who knew who Jesus was. When it says the Lord needs them, they knew who they were talking about. Jesus needs them. Remember, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem this time, the reason there's a crowd around him is because he's been doing some incredible things. We know from John's gospel that Lazarus has been risen from the dead. That's a big deal. Word's going to spread with something like that. And so there is a lot of commotion about this Jesus of Nazareth. And so no doubt as the people are, are hearing about him and the crowds are starting to get together, when they go in there and say, hey, the Lord needs him. Oh, Jesus needs, okay, go ahead. And so it was probably someone who was aware of Jesus and, and knew about him. And the reason I say that is because the work of God many times takes place through the people of God. As we're going to see here, this is a fulfillment of prophecy, but the fulfillment of prophecy took place to the, through those who had faith in God. Those who were believers participated in the work of God. And so it's not just some out of the sky, oh, hey, there's donkey, there's the colt, let's get him. This was most likely involving people who actually knew who Jesus was, and now they're participating in this work, in this celebration, in this entry where Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And he's coming as a procession, as a king. With the king comes the kingdom. But this kingdom is so different than what we think of when we think of a king. From the very beginning, the announcement is herald, heralded by these foreigners who are astrologers, who are not used to the, the Jewish customs and ways, who are outsiders. They're the ones who herald this king is born. And now here comes Jesus, not on a white horse, wearing purple and, and having, you know, this big procession. He comes, it says, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's so different than what we would expect from a king. What we would expect from a king, we find in Revelation. And you can turn to the book of Revelation Chapter 19. This is probably more our idea of a king coming in a triumphant entry. This is referred to what we're reading this evening as the triumphant entry of Jesus. And you think, what is triumphant about this? He's got a donkey. 
he's going and we know he's going to be crucified. Chapter 19, verse 11, it says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. That's more like it. Got a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his, this name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. Now that's more like it. That's a king. That's a procession. That's triumphant. But that's not yet. That's not what's taking place here. And thankfully, it's not yet. See, one day that is going to be who people We'll see. That is going to be how the king comes. But this time, it's not like that. This time, it's inviting. It's a celebration. It's humble. This time, it is open. And so we see as he starts coming in here, he is doing this intentionally. He sent them to get the donkey because it's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 where he says, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. He is letting them know, I am the king. I am the king. This is how the king enters. This is the procession. This is what it's supposed to be. And as this starts taking place, and he starts coming in this way. The people are in an uproar, but he's coming gently. There's something to be said about Jesus' demeanor and being gentle. He's not forcing himself on the people. He's not forcing his rule on the people. In fact, has Jesus ever forced his rule on the people that you can think of? You can speak up, say, no. I see you shaking your head, some of you. You can be vocal. No. Has his disciples in and through the book of Acts, as we see it, ever forced the, the rule of Christ on the people? We don't see that. We see a gentleness. It's entreating. It's inviting. It's not forcing. You see, back in about 300 B.C., it was a ill day for the church when the church then borrowed the army of the heathens and the emperor Constantine to try and move forward the kingdom of God. 
to try and force Christianity to be the religion. The church gained nothing except it became polluted. Became polluted with pagan beliefs, became polluted with idolatrous worship, became polluted with power. It became shameful. And the church that would ask for a civil arm to help it, which would try and force the Sabbaths or try and bind people and force the law, a church that would try and make their dogmas proclaimed and beat with a drum and a fist and a sword to make their weapons, that's not what Jesus is doing. As he is coming in, it's gentle, it's on a donkey. There, there is a lack of force. Let me ask you this. What do you think about a country that tries to force morality? Do you think it's going to work? Do you think that's... Huh? What, what it does is it actually opens more immorality. People push back. Can you force someone to be moral? Are you really going to change the heart of people by establishing laws? So then, just to stir things up, and it's a political year, how important is it to try and establish Moral laws. Just the question is how important, not is it are moral or morals not important? They they are. But how how much should we push? And if we push hard, are we representing Jesus accurately. It's one thing to stand up and have a belief in something that you think is, this is the, the path that God has. This is what God has called us to. It is definitely a moral and righteous position that we believe in. It's one thing to stand up for those beliefs and, and understand why we believe those things, but how important is it to push them? on a society that does not believe in them. What good is going to come from it? The moral majority, has that done more good or more harm to the cause of Christ? It's just a question. Just a question. Have more people come to faith because of it or been turned off to faith because of it? Just some things to think about. If our focus becomes rule, what are the lashback? What is going to be the repercussions to pushing a rule of our beliefs? And how does that line up with what Jesus is doing here?
Any thoughts? Come on, you guys got thoughts. I know you do. Well, we're talking about trying to force our beliefs as followers of Jesus on those who are not followers. And remember, the colonies were planted for religious freedom, not Christian freedom. It's important to understand that. Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. There are a lot of the founding fathers who were deists, but weren't, quote, Christian. But they came because they wanted freedom. And they, they felt the oppression from the parliament, and they went out so that they could worship freely. Again, there was a strong Christian influence. You can't deny that. Yeah, you, you definitely, you know, again, it's not that we don't have morals, we have morals, and morals is the uh, belief in something is right over something else. It, it is a standard that we hold to that we hold to as right. We're supposed to have morals. But it's how do, is the important thing to push the morals forward, or is the important thing to push, I think, even what you said in, in dealing with the debate about homosexuality and not using scripture? It's like, it, why did God put these morals down? Why, why has God considered life sacred and holy? Why do we believe that? Not let's just make laws against it. Let's understand the heart of God and let's try and win the hearts. I've shared about this group before that is a pro-life group, but they don't call themselves pro-life. They don't picket abortion clinics. They actually are able to go into the schools into the health classes and show the development of a baby using these four-dimensional models where they can actually see the child growing up. And they are having more effect bringing understanding to what's taking place than if you're outside picketing. And they're actually invited into the schools to present their presentation. And when the young girl who is pregnant sees this incredible and detailed development of this baby, then she is confronted with the morality. She isn't being forced to believe. She is seeing the truth of the belief. And I think that makes all the difference in the world. Through an awareness, through conversation, through understanding, it, it, you're not going to get anyone to stop being a homosexual by making a law saying homosexuals are illegal. That's not going to change the heart of people. Just like you're not going to stop someone from being a Muslim by making laws that say you can't go to the mosque. Christianity flourishes in countries that have made Christianity illegal. Why? Because the heart is still going to move forward. And, and so education is one point, I guess, education into the belief in the heart of God and what God is doing. But you see, it's a lot easier to make laws. It's a lot easier to not have to have the hard conversations like this 
where we actually talk about how do you move forward in a way that is going to be helpful, it's a lot easier to just try and make things very black and white, and then we don't have to deal with or answer some of the other issues. If we can just throw a Bible verse and say, it's wrong, the Bible says so, now I don't have to talk to you about how you feel. Now I've just told you God believes this way, and if you don't believe it, you're wrong. Now I'm not dialoguing. Now I'm not conversing. Now I'm not helping a person to see the heart of God. I've just thrown out the rules. And unfortunately, I don't think that's gentle. I don't think that is the most productive. I don't think that is engaging people with respect. And I don't think that is opening opportunities to be able to interact with people of different beliefs, whether it's spiritual beliefs like a Muslim, whether it's moral beliefs like a person homosexual or a person who's had abortion or believes that that's, you know, the woman's right. How am I going to have a conversation with someone when I've shut the door and said they're wrong, blanket, and that's it? It makes it difficult. And so how we move forward has to be done very wise. Okay, we have to be smart in what we do and how we move things first. Um, the church has not been good at forcing the kingdom of God. Jesus came gentle on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not in white horse and procession. The day will come when God's going to judge. We believe that. Until that time, how do we gently move forward his kingdom so that people can see and understand? And I'm not throwing out blanket statements. I'm trying to just throw out some thoughts to you guys to help you think. I believe morals are valid and, and safeguard for our lives. I believe, you know, that, yeah, homosexuality is a sin. Yeah, I, I believe that you're not to, to engage in sex until you're married. I, I believe that abortion is the taking of a life. I, I believe that slavery is wrong. I believe, which at one point the United States was okay with. A lot of Christians were okay with. Um, there's a lot of things that I believe. How, how do I move the important things forward in all of those conversations? How do I move the important things? And by important things, I mean that person and that person's relationship to God. Because if you change the heart, you change everything. And God is the one who changes hearts. How do I get a conversation to start between the homosexual and God? How do I get a conversation to start between the Muslim and God and Jesus? How do I get a conversation to start between the person who is living a, quote, immoral life and the God who created them? How can I start that conversation? <laughs> Because God is going to do a, a much greater job at changing them than I can. And it will be by illumination. He will reveal truth. He will reveal sin. 
We were created in his image to desire to be like him. And all these areas where we fail to be like him, they actually go against who we really are. And I believe that God, as he becomes clearer and clearer, is going to expose the darkness that is in us and is going to change us from the inside out. So how do we move that conversation forward? Some thoughts. That kind of gets tracking with me there. Well, yeah, I mean, how Jesus interacted always caused problems. And we're going to see, you know, that he was always in that kind of center. I mean, he didn't know what kind of woman it was that was touching him. She was a prostitute. The woman caught in adultery. He was the only one who said, I don't condemn you. Everyone else was condemning her. Um, There's so many situations where we see how Jesus dealt with these people, you know, with Zacchaeus, who was a thief and went and had dinner at his house. And we don't know the conversation, but it, it doesn't seem like Jesus said, Zacchaeus, you're a thief. You need to give back everything that you stole. Zacchaeus did that on his own after spending time with Jesus. And I think that's telling. I think that's telling. And most of the time when you talk like this, people think you're compromising. You're compromising your beliefs. No, I still believe the same thing. I'm not compromising what I believe. I'm not watering. I'm not telling them, oh, it's okay, live how you want. God doesn't care. I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to be like Jesus. I'm trying to win the heart and not that other battle. Who cares if a person stops an action if their hearts are still separated from God? Again, can you legislate morality? Can you force people to believe? Belief in itself is something you have to own. That's what it is by nature. And so I just think the whole gospel and coming to this point of how Jesus comes in gentle, how he comes in in a way that they didn't expect We're going to see they were hoping for something other than this. These same people who were shouting Hosanna, which means save now. It's kind of like God save the king. They're saying Hosanna, save now, save now. Some of these people are the same ones who are shouting crucify him, crucify him come Friday. Why? Because, A, he's not the guy. He didn't come in on the white horse. He's not changing all these things. This isn't the one we want. And Jesus is saying, no, I am the king. This is how the king shows up. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like right now. And it's different than they expected. It's different than what they wanted. And so, you know, it says in verse 10 that the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Now, when it says they're stirred, who is this? What do you think their thoughts were? And let me give you a a little clue when you start to look at the scripture when it talks about people and you want to find out what's going on. Think about what you would be thinking what was going on because you're a people too. Okay, you're you're a lot like these people. You're going to have the same thoughts. If something like this was going on today with these people, you're going to have similar things taking place in your thoughts. Do you think everyone was on board with Jesus when they said they were stirred? Do you think everyone was like, yeah, this is him, this is the Messiah? 
No, probably not. There are probably some people sitting there mocking him. Oh, look at these guys. I'm sure. What is this about? They're silly. I can't believe they're walking around. What are they doing throwing these palm leaves out? Oh, this is going to be interesting. Some are going to be curious. Oh, I want to see this. Some are going to be, oh, this is that Jesus guy I heard about. Did you hear about Lazarus? Yeah, I heard. Well, let's go check it out. And they're going to go and they're like, Herod, do something, Jesus. Do a miracle. I want to see something big. So people are coming with all these ideas, all this understanding of, of what it's going to be like. Not everyone's on board. It's not this, you know, Cecil B. DeMille movie where everyone's on board with Jesus. Everyone's rooting for him. You got people who are there. Oh, they're just jumping. You know how kids are when there's a big event, a rose parade or something. They'll go want to be a part of whatever they can be a part of. Oh, boy. So you're going to have all kinds of people there. The crowd is stirred. But there's a lot of people here. There are thousands of people lining the streets here. This is a big deal. Okay, let, let's go on. We'll try and cover a few more things here. Um, verse 12, we see Jesus enters the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Okay, another powerful passage. A couple of things I want to just make clear here as we talk about this a little bit. The idea of the temple courts is an outer place that in the temple there was supposed to be room for those who were foreigners, the Gentiles, or those who were disabled, those who were not able to go into the holier places in the temple. This is for those who weren't allowed access there. And there there was a, a market. If you wanted to worship God, you had to make sure you worshiped him properly. You had to sacrifice certain animals, and then the priest there would make sure that your animal was sufficient. I'm sorry, that, that dove, which is something that you would offer if you were low income, isn't clean enough for God. You need to buy one of our sanctified doves, and you can get them at a price. And so now give us your money and we're going to have to use and make a currency to get proper money so that you can buy. Because you can't buy God's doves with unclean money. Have you guys ever been out of the country, especially to Europe, and you go through the rate exchange? It's depressing. You give them 100 bucks, and they give you 50 pounds. It's like, wait, I gave you a hundred bucks. Yeah, you, all you get is 50 pounds for a hundred bucks. That's a jip. Sorry, that's the way it is. Well, that's similar to what was going on here. 
You want to buy one of God's doves? Okay, give us your coins. Here, we're going to give you so much in return. Well, now it's costing me twice as much to buy one of these doves that I can sacrifice to God. And so there was a big business going on here to be able to worship God. And it was taking place in this outer court where the Gentiles were supposed to be invited to come and worship. And so that's kind of the framework of what's taking place. And so when Jesus comes in and he starts overturning the tables and kicking out the money changers, it's interesting because this takes place, you know, in the Gospels and in different accounts. It's a little bit more fervent, but it's taking place. And again, we see that Jesus is making a statement and he makes the statement. It is written, my house will be called a house of prayer which is taken from Isaiah, but you have made it into a den of robbers, which is taken from Jeremiah. So he's quoting two passages and saying, you guys have messed things up. Now, let me ask you this. What does Jesus mean when it says, my house will be called a house of prayer? What do you think that means? What is a house of prayer? What's his point? When you pray, what what are you doing? You're talking to God, right? You're, you're communicating with God. And so a house of prayer is a house where communication with God takes place. I mean, kind of what you're saying. I mean, it's that's kind of the idea. When they would come to pray, they were coming to have a communication with God. They were coming to worship. Prayer is a type of worship. I've shared this scripture before, and I need to share it again because this is the passage that, to me, kind of correlates to this. And it's in 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, starting at verse 41. This is Solomon dedicating the temple. And Solomon says, As for the foreigner... Okay, remember, they're in the outer court. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray towards this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that the people of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. And so the foreigner, when they come and they pray to you, when they ask of you, answer what they ask, so they might know you're the real deal. You are the Lord. You are mighty. That they would fear you as your people do. That was the intention. That was the purpose of the temple. When Solomon dedicated it, this is what he had in mind. That this temple would be your space, God, where the foreigner can come and Talk and ask of you, and you will hear and answer them, or this communication will take place, and you will be known, and you will be seen. Let that be known. 
And so Jesus, fast forward, here comes Jesus, and what are they doing? Where is this court that Solomon, I mean, yeah, Solomon had said, Lord, when the foreigner comes to this place, let them communicate with you what's taking place there. Oh, they're selling. They're making money. They're making hurdles for the foreigner to have to jump over if he's going to communicate with God. If he's going to come to this place where he can talk to God, he's going to pay. And what's Jesus' response? He's upset. He's angry. He's throwing the tables over. He's getting them out of the way, and then he starts just letting them know this is not the intention. This is not what God has intended. You've made my father's house, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, you've made it a den of robbers. And then the blind and the lame, verse 14, come into the temple and he heals them. This is what my intention is. For those who are blind, for those who can't walk, to be healed, for, for God to show up in the lives of the least of these, those who don't have the ability. If you are blind and if you are lame, you are also poor. In this society, you are poor. And so here comes those who are normally not allowed into this space. They're invited into this space. And Jesus heals them. Again, we're getting insight into the heart of God and the things that God is doing. And so as this is taking place, Jesus is doing this. And then wouldn't you know it, it's the kids who are running around shouting. Hosanna! Hosanna to the son of David. They're all shouting out. AJ would be one of them right now. He would have been in there just doing, I mean, I'm telling you, it would have been that kind of a commotion. Just, you don't do that in the temple. Shut them up. Don't you hear what they're saying? And the idea, the reference to the son of David is the Messiah. And this is where they're irate because Jesus just blasted them. He called them on their being thieves. And now they're calling Jesus the Messiah. And he's going, don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus says, yeah, I do. And then he quotes from the Psalms. Psalm 8, where it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And, And from the mouths of children, You have brought forth this praise. Don't you know that they're just doing what's supposed to be done? They're bringing out this praise and this understanding of God. Now, just so we can be controversial. uh, No, not just because of that. Do we put up any barriers where the outsider would feel uncomfortable coming in to our place of worship. And we might not have money tables where they have to buy and exchange, but do we have a code that they have to adhere by? 
what happens when the person who doesn't look the part comes in? You know, if they have tattoos and then dressed all in black. Crean was joking just with some people that said, oh yeah, you know, what if someone comes in here that's all tattooed and dressed in black? She goes, oh, like my kids, you know. <laughs> Do we put up some kind of barrier so that when someone who is outside comes in that they feel like, I'm not welcome here. I don't look like them. I, I don't act like them. I, I don't know if I'm welcome here. Do we give them the evil eye? Watch that guy. I don't trust him. It doesn't look like us. And the person. Yeah. Well, if we do, I hope we stop, you know. But, I mean, the, and then the idea, too, of just church in general. Well, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners, you know, which meant he hung out with sinners. But he didn't engage in their sin. And so, like you were saying, he was strong enough to know who he was about and what he was there for and to be a person who could communicate with those people who the religious people of that time would have nothing to do with. Are we able to do the same thing? You know, I know if you're in uh, Wales, most of the places you eat, especially if it's after 5 o'clock, has got to be a pub. They're the only places that are open. You can't go to a restaurant after 5 o'clock. Everything, the whole place shuts down, but the pubs are open all night. So if you want to go eat, you've got to go to a pub. Is there anything wrong with pubs? No. That's where everyone's at. You see, that's where Jesus would be. He would be. You're with the, the drunkens, the wine drinkers, the, the, the publicans, the tax collectors who were the thieves, the prostitutes. Jesus is hanging out with those people. And like I said, he's breaking down the social expectations of the religious people. That's not what we do who are religious, which, which goes on. I'm going to press into the next because it, it leads perfectly into this. In, in verse 18, early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, you may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you also say to the mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, our focus tends to be verse 21 and um, 22 because that is so powerful. But what's taking place here? A fig tree usually brings figs before it brings leaves. When a fig tree starts to produce fruit, it's going to bring out these little bulbs, the, the figs will grow, and then the leaves come afterwards. So if you see a fig tree that has a lot of leaves, it should have fruit. And so when they came to this fig tree full of leaves, it should have had fruit, but it didn't. 
Israel, the nation and the religious people and specifically, had no fruit. With all that God had afforded them, with the law, the writings of the prophets, they were a lot of leaves and no fruit. They looked religious. They looked good. But they produced nothing. Israel had no influence at this time upon the community and the age around it. They were sterile. All the scribes, all the Pharisees, all the priests, all the elders, they were sticklers to the letter of the law. They boasted about being worshipers of God and strict observance of the law. Their constant cry was, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We have Abraham as our father. All these things were constantly on their lips. They were fig trees full of leaves, but had no fruit. And that's the point Jesus is bringing out here in this whole dialogue. Now, I know I've heard all kinds of things on, well, fig tree represents Israel and prophecy. You know what? Right now, I think Jesus is really just talking about the hypocrisy that was taking place of a religion that would kick people out that is supposed to be the place of God, the house of God to bring people in, and they made it a den of thieves, and here is a tree that represents the same thing. Again, Matthew is great at telescoping these kinds of things. He's trying to bring a point. Jesus did this. Here's a story. They're connected. And so here are this disciples walking with Jesus, and he gives an illustration. He curses the tree. Now, understand, the tree actually was already cursed. It didn't have any fruit. The tree was already useless. And all Jesus did was point out, you're useless. And so, with that thought, how do we fit into that? Because it's easy for us to look at these things and say, okay, yeah, those bad Israelites, those bad Pharisees and, and those Sadducees. Yeah, because this is the first time the Sadducees actually are coming up against Jesus, the, the teachers of the law. Those guys were bad. But Jesus is telling us something here, too. Well, it's a messy thing, this reaching out to these people, you know, that don't have the same beliefs as you. It's people are going to call you names, just like they did Jesus. You know, people are going to say things about you, just like they did to Jesus. And it's going to be difficult to be in an environment where people are living in a way that isn't the way you live and to be able to have that kind of communication and dialogue with them, it forces you to live a life that makes a difference. Because what good is it if you're doing the same thing as them? You, you have to be a light, not in just what you say, but in how you live. Your life has to produce fruit. There has to be something that they say, I want a marriage like yours. I, I want a life that has the peace that your life has. Even though you're not, you know, 
financially well-to-do or even though you go through physical difficulties or whatever, like everyone else, there is something different that stands out. I see something, and again, that is what Jesus was, the light of God. You are uh, the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. You're not to be hidden. That's who you are. Or should we say, is that who you are? And Jesus is making this point, and he's pushing this point to the point where he's throwing tables over. Temple. You say to the temple, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't pray to the temple as if that's going to make things better. He was always calling on this hypocrisy. You need to be real. From the inside out, you need to be genuine. And this is an illustration. This whole fig tree is an illustration of just that. Don't be like these people. They look like they got fruit, but there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Yeah, we don't compromise. You gotta, every now and then, you gotta throw the table. <laughs> Just turn it over. Good point. That makes sense. Kind of the whole point of what's taking place here in this procession that Matthew's taking us through. It's for a purpose. And again, the kingdom of God is coming with Jesus, but it's not coming like we'd expect. It's coming gently. It's changing how things are. He goes into the temple. You know, Matthew, again, it shows as if it was right afterwards. Mark tells us it's like, I think, Tuesday that he would go into the temple. And this is the last week that Jesus is going to be doing all these things. Um, and he's doing them for a reason. It's pointing to what he's doing. It's pointing to what the kingdom of heaven is showing up like. It's showing up different than what they thought. But it is showing up, just like we've been going through on Sunday. This beautiful mess, the kingdom of heaven is breaking through, and it's breaking through right here. We're seeing the kingdom of heaven break through the turning over the temple or the tables at the temple. The kingdom of heaven is showing up. We're making room for these people to come in. It's the kingdom of heaven showing up, all these things. Any other thoughts? I don't think so. I don't think it's quite the same. It's not like they were using it just to be a prophet. Uh, actually, those kinds of things can be a, a reach out to a community as well. Um, what was taking place here was in order to worship, you had to do this. In order to get to God, you had to go through us, and we're going to make money off of you. And I don't think that's the same thing. I don't think they're saying to worship God, you have to buy a sandwich, you know, and then we're going to make money on that sandwich kind of a thing. Because I know people say, well, at the church, do they sell, like, clothing or coffee, those things? It's not like you're using that as means to God. What Jesus was upset about wasn't that there was money there. He was upset is that they were making a profit off the people in order for them to get to God. Anytime there's something between the people and God, whenever a person 
a man puts something in between a person and God that they have to go through and make some kind of hurdle, Jesus is really upset with those things. That's where he, he kind of shows up in this manner. Whenever you try and make another step to God, Jesus will have none of that. He's trying to make things as clear and as easy as possible, which was Solomon's prayer. Lord, when they come, let them come and open the doors so that they can hear and know that you are God. And so I think that's a little different. Are there any other questions? <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> any other questions on this? I encourage you guys, when you read the scripture and when you hear some of the things that Jesus said, don't think of it as you're automatically on Jesus' side. Think of them as if he's talking to you and how that would apply to you. In other words, when he's overthrowing the table and saying, you've made this a den of, you know, my father's house of prayer into a den of thieves, ask, Lord, have I done that? Am I doing? When he shows up to the tree and he curses it because it's not bearing fruit, Lord, am I? I not bearing fruit, it's real easy to get on the us versus them kind of wagon. God, that's them. That's not me. Yeah, God, deal with them. And we can become very pharisaical in our faith if we're not careful. That's what Jesus warns us about. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That's what we need to worry about. Not if, you know, I mean, that's what he tells us to worry about. He doesn't say, make sure you guys do not drink or smoke or chew or go around with people who do. <laughs> Sorry, had to go there. That's not what he warns us about. He warns us about being hypocrites. Beware of that leaven. And so when we read these scriptures, have that understanding. Jesus is writing to us. He's writing these things so we can understand. Because it's real easy for us to, to want to push the kingdom of God forward and make it law. And now as they had the Old Testament laws, we now have our New Testament laws. And we take Paul's writings to the church in Corinth and we make them the new laws of God. And we take out of context what Paul was dealing with and we try and make it the standard. And we've got to be careful of those things. We have to be able to see things clearly, interpret them in the right light. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. They wanted the white horse. You know, they wanted their ways pushed through. They wanted Rome out. They wanted Jerusalem to be back under their rule. Um, that's what they wanted, you know, and Jesus didn't come in that way. Um, sometimes that's what we want. We want our nation to be a holy nation. We want no more pornography. We want no more, you know, abortion. We want no more homosexuality. That's the way we want it. And we try and force those things there, and Jesus is coming in on a donkey, 
you know, and it's like he's not coming in changing the laws. Okay, there's no more gay marriage. There's no more this. There's no more that. There, gay. We have all that, but we still have the corruption that's taking place. You know, I think that's kind of something that we have to stand back and look at. What do we want? Do we want laws or do we want change? You know, do we want to see the hearts of people change? Because you can change all the laws you want and not change the heart of people. You know, and Jesus came in to change the heart of people. He didn't come in to change the laws and to take over. You know, that day will come, but right now he's here to change the heart of people. And the way he does it is the way we're to do it. We're to emulate him. And it is difficult. It is difficult. It's taxing. It's tedious. It makes us think, how do I talk to this person? How do I communicate these things? And that's a good conversation to have. That's why we did the series like the Crave series. And that's why, you know, it's important for us to, you know, Jesus was the friend of sinners, but he wasn't really welcome with the religious people. Is that the same true for us today or is it the opposite? We can get along with the religious people really good, but the sinners want nothing to do with us. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. If sinners don't feel comfortable with us, something's wrong. Why? Because they felt comfortable with Jesus. You need to battle that out. How do you make that not so and still maintain your beliefs? Jesus never compromised. He didn't go get drunk. He wasn't involved in anything sinful, but the sinners felt comfortable with him. He was their friend. How can you make that happen in your life? And not how can you, you need to. I need to. We need to. Does that make you uncomfortable? It should. It should. It should make you, ah, what do I have to do? I think that's the heart of it, too. If you're there to just change their behavior, they're going to see that. If you're there because you really care about them, they're going to see that. Are you there just to change their behavior? Are you a friend with that person who's gay because you just want to see them not be gay? Or are you a friend with that person because you really care about that person? There's a difference. There's a big difference. Yeah, there's a deeper concern. There's a deeper concern, definitely. A deeper concern than just the surface. I just want you to act like me because that's what they'll start to see. Hey, I'll like you better if you act like me. What kind of message is that? You know, but if I really care about you and I see you're hurting your life and I want to help you have a better life, they're going to see that as well. Now it's not just fix this, put some more leaves on your tree, make it look better. Okay, we better stop going late. All right. Appreciate your comments tonight, guys. Appreciate them. Settle down, Marco. Don't go through them. Let's pray. Father, a lot of things that we just kind of discussed and we threw out there. And, and Lord, the intention is to make us think. The intention here is to engage us, to not just give us information, but to challenge how we see the world around us. Lord, that's what you always did. You challenged us to think. You challenged us to love those that were unlovely. You challenged 
our religious perspective and pushed at it and pushed and overthrew the tables and, and challenged, Lord, those beliefs that need to be challenged. And God, I pray that we've been challenged here tonight. I, I pray that we have been engaged to think different and maybe put aside some of our religious ways and move forward in our ways that are are more like you. God, help us to be lives that actually do produce fruit. Lord, help us to have an influence on the world around us and not to sit back in our buildings and feel good about ourselves. Help us to care enough to involve ourselves in the lives of those around us. As uncomfortable as it might be, Lord, help us to love genuinely. Help us to engage people sincerely for their sake and not for our our sake, not to make ourselves feel better. Father, I pray that all that we talked about here tonight would be just that birthplace of new thought and fresh thought and new commitment to you, to your ways, and to love as you loved. Lord, may we see change in the lives around us because we are involved with the lives around us. May we live holy lives that produce fruit that are examples to those around us. They would see the light within us. They would see you within us and that we can make a difference. Thank you again for this time. Ask your continued hand upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.